Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk with U.S. Representative Jim Cooper, Democrat of Tennessee's 5th Congressional District and a founding member of the House Blue Dog Coalition. On January 25th, after after 32 years in office, Cooper announced that he would not be seeking re-election in 2022. Today, we'll discuss that difficult decision with Jim Cooper. We'll look back on his notable career in Congress, and we'll get his take on the challenges ahead for our nation. Concord Coalition National Field Director Phil Smith joins the conversation. Jim and Phil, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you, Bob. Delighted to be with you. Uh, You know, uh, Jim, I want to get to the uh, circumstances of your retirement, which uh, I think point point up a uh, serious flaw in our electoral system. But but I want to begin on a uh, more uplifting note, which is which is really um, your dedication to fiscal responsibility over the years. And so I want to just start with, with uh, you know, why is it that when you went into politics, when you went into Congress and right throughout your 32 years, fiscal responsibility has always been important uh, to you. And I, I just wanted to give you a, an opportunity to, to say why that is. Well, thank you, Bob. I think that I've always had a good environmental voting record, and our young people are especially concerned about that, and they understand sustainability when it comes to the environment. Unfortunately, many of them do not understand sustainability when it comes to our budgeting, because if you can't afford it, it's not going to happen. Budgets constrain all human activity, so we can't wish budgets away. We've got to deal with them, and ideally, we need to live uh, within some sort of reasonable constraint so we can still borrow money when we need to. And we've been playing fast and loose with this for a long time. Sometimes I feel like I've failed utterly because I've been outvoted my colleagues most of the time who just want to spend, 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 and seem to not uh, realize one day there'll be a day of reckoning. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you put it in the generational perspective because I think that's that's really it. I mean, we've been pushing that rock up the hill for, <laughs> for a long time also, and sometimes it can get pretty depressing. Um, but it is, I, I think, sort of fundamental to long-term economic growth. I think sometimes that gets lost on people, is that if, if the whole thing is unsustainable, uh, you know, it eventually has to stop. Um, and so no matter what perspective you're coming at, it, it, it just seems that eventually the fiscal policy of the nation has to be on a sound footing. Absolutely. Our young people today grew up at a time with near zero interest rates, and they don't realize they grew up in a bubble, and a bubble by definition cannot last. So when interest rates return to normal, and that could be happening right now, and it's already helping crash the stock market a little bit, 
uh, that will mean that probably the largest federal program will be interest on our debt service, trying to service the, the past debts we've accumulated, oftentimes without realizing we'd spent the money. And you never want that to be the largest federal program. We need the largest federal program to be things that are actually helping people today, not paying off for past um, mistakes. So we really got to watch this. And uh, there are two things going on. One, we're getting out of the old interest rate bubble. Interest rates are returning to normal. And two, watch out because that uh, federal spending is going to go up, up, up on really mainly held a debt by foreigners now. I want to uh, I want to bring Phil in, but first I want to get in one, one more question here. Um, I think you were a founding member of the Blue Dog Coalition. I was, uh, yeah, and and that was uh, something that uh, you and 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 others did, uh, kind of uh, with a focus on fiscal responsibility. And and I was wondering if. Uh, for our board, for our board members, uh, Charlie Stenholm and, and John Tanner, who uh, worked with you on that, I wonder if you could just talk about the beginning of the Blue Dog Coalition, what its goals were, and what its role is today. We are centrist. We're really between the two political parties, actually, where most American voters are, because people aren't born Democrats or Republicans. Many people adhere to those party labels, but what most people want is a stronger, better America. They want a better future for their kids. That's what Blue Dogs try to deliver. Uh, the name came because we were yellow dog Democrats, which is, means an unrepentant Democrat, but we were strangled blue because we often voted with the other side. All that matters is who's got the best ideas. And if it comes from a Republican, fine. If it comes from a Democrat, even better. But no party has a monopoly on good ideas. Phil, you want to jump in? Sure. Congressman, that's a great segue to a question I wanted to ask you about related to bipartisanship. Um, you're, you've been a key leader in so many areas of fiscal policy, but you also um, were the co-sponsor of one of the few honest fiscal packages that ever reached the floor of the House of Representatives. And of course, I'm talking about legislation that actually had your name on it called Cooper La Tourette. Uh, we called you guys who voted for it the Great 38. And uh, could you recount a little bit for us what that process was like? From our side, it was fascinating because these things rarely reach the House floor. And once it looked like it did, I remember at one point we thought we had a whip count of way over 100 and the forces of evil on both sides started rearing their heads and special interests started calling. And back then, I think we even had fax machines, you know, stuff was coming in. Could you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and how we came dangerously close to actually having a, a fiscally responsible plan on the table? Thank you, Phil. The real credit goes to um, Erskine Bowles and uh, Senator Simpson, because they pioneered a commission totally bipartisan on how to put America back on the right track, something that everybody wants, but few people are brave enough to do. So their study report, you know, really offended everybody because everybody has to have a little skin in the game. But it was totally bipartisan. And the only way to make a four trillion dollar correction in our national course you know, votes like this only happen about every 10 or 20 years, if you're lucky. It's a little bit like Hallie's comment coming through. So we had to take advantage of that opportunity to avoid the icebergs that our nation is otherwise facing and get the ship back on the right track. So the Senate dithered, as they usually do. And finally, we had enough momentum in the House to actually call for vote. And many people wanted to pose for holy pictures. They wanted the credit of looking like they're fiscally responsible. But when the vote came, most of them chickened out. And there are only 38 people who are willing to take the heat to save America. And I'm so thankful for all those folks 
Charlie Stenholm, John Tanner. There's some of the few, the brave, the Marines, but most <laughs> people wanted to sit on their sofa and, you know, cater to um, just handing out free lunches to everybody. Well, that doesn't work. It's pleasant at the time, but it hurts the nation long run. So the Simpson Bowles effort was one of the few efforts in modern American history to save America. It failed and failed utterly. And ever since then, we've been flailing. The uh, pandemic hasn't helped. And in genuine emergencies, I'm a Keynesian. I believe in emergency spending. That's fine. But um, that emergency is gradually ending. We're going to have to service the World War II size debt that we've got right now. And that will literally take a couple of generations. Congressman, the goal of the Concord Coalition since our founding 30 years ago is to educate Americans about federal budget policy. And I remember uh, facilitating an event in your hometown uh, in, in downtown Nashville at the public library where we uh, ran our federal budget exercise where, where citizens, in this case, your constituents, came in and assembled a long-term plan. Um, I know we live in very divided times, incredibly polarized times, but do you believe that public education is still important? Do you think that citizen engagement is still key to these efforts to, to move forward? Well, Phil, in a democracy, that's the only thing that matters. You have to have the people on your side. And most people simply do not understand that all the federal government is, and it's huge and mighty and not just in Washington, but everywhere. But all it is really is a giant insurance company with its own standing army. We don't realize that almost 70% of federal spending is insurance or actuarially related. And it's really writing checks to individuals. And that's great and often needed, but we don't even understand the nature of this because most people don't even think that Social Security, Medicare, or even government programs. And they're the, bar the biggest government programs. So Congress has basically put itself out of business. Congress only fiddles with about 25% of federal spending. The rest is on automatic pilot. And if that were headed in the right direction, we'd be fine. Uh, and again, I'm for Social Security and Medicare, but I want those programs to be on a sound footing so they'll last forever. I'm so much for Social Security and Medicare. I want them to be around forever. The uh, more obvious um, advocates of those programs are actually for sinking those programs fast because through irresponsible spending, that's the best way to ruin Social Security and Medicare. You know, um, you talked about uh, post-pandemic. I think we're in a really crucial environment right now because, um, you know, we, we certainly didn't go into the pandemic in strong fiscal shape uh, for reasons that you mentioned. And then I, I agree with you, um, you know, the Concord Coalition didn't have any problem with large, large spending uh, on the pandemic because we had to, we had to fight it and, and there had to be economic relief from the effects of the pandemic. And so we're coming out of that now, uh, fingers crossed, and kind of looking for a, a new way forward on fiscal responsibility. Um, and one of the, one of the issues, economic, I should say economic growth and fiscal responsibility, and one of the things that you have been identified with, and, and you even mentioned it in your statement on, uh, on your retirement, is immigration. You know, to, to, to have strong economic growth, we're, we, we need to, I mean, we've got a fiscal problem, but we also have a, uh, a, a problem with long-term systemic growth because of our declining workforce growth, which is really dramatic and doesn't get enough attention at all. And it's nobody's fault. It's just a lot of people, congressmen, are your age and my age. And I think you and I are the same age. <laughs> and uh, 
this this is uh, you know you got to have more people even younger than Phil who mm-hmm. uh, and you know so legal immigration uh, has always been a, a hallmark of this country and so just as we talked about fiscal responsibility before I would just like to give you an opportunity to talk about why immigration has always been important to you. Well, unfortunately, both political parties have used immigration as a political football. You know, the Republican presidents like Reagan and George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, were no, for fair immigration policies. It's, there's some other elements of the Republican Party, though, that want to use this to try to uh, stigmatize the other. No, economic truth is we need them. We need their labor. Uh, we need their hard work. And we should be so thankful for the immigrants we already have. So... Peter Drucker, the great management consultant, said that demographics is the future that's already happened. And when we're not having enough babies, when we don't have enough young people of our own, we really need to go out recruiting the best talent from around the world. And we should be so thankful they're helping us. So um, there are signs of hope. About six or seven years ago, the U.S. Senate passed a comprehensive immigration bill with 70 percent of the Senate on board, totally bipartisan. And the House wasn't even allowed to vote on it. If we had been allowed to vote on it, it would have passed with 300 uh, votes and become law. And then this political football, we couldn't play with it anymore. And that's why the Republican Speaker of the House at the time would not allow it to come up. So we need to harness whatever majorities we've got left in Congress right now and try to get this passed because it would be a great blessing, not only for America, but for our economy. It would help ensure economic growth. Yeah, I always think that that's really, really frustrating when a bill doesn't pass. A bill isn't brought up for a vote because it might pass. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> what I the heck? Well, there are a lot of games in politics, and it's hardball. It's not softball. Yeah. Uh, Phil, you want to jump in? Sure. Congressman, over the years, um, I've had a chance to visit actually each of the 50 states and so many of the congressional districts. And I probably shouldn't say this, but your district is one of my top favorites. You <laughs> represent one of the coolest districts ever. So I, I share with you in, in mourning the decimation of your district. I think it's been Nashville's had its own district for what, like 200 years or something. So, uh, but when I look at your district, it's not just a home of country music, which I also love. It's also home to the, to, to much of the healthcare industry. And when we talk about fiscal policy, it seems to oftentimes get back to healthcare policy, right? And one thing that we look at, if you don't uh, find a way to curb long-term healthcare costs, we're really not going to be able to solve any of our problems, right? That kind of uh, trumps everything else. So I guess my question is, what do you feel like the next 10, 20 years is for healthcare policy? What do you see our future is for healthcare policy? We have no choice but try to train uh, health spending because it's so far out of line right now that it's literally sinking the whole rest of the economy. Now, people don't necessarily realize that because when they work, they get fringe benefits and it's often health insurance. And that really eats up their paycheck. The main reason that Americans have faced 30, 40 years of cash wage stagnation is the fact that their health benefits have been exploding. The overall compensation is actually more or less kept in line with the economy. But see, unless you get sick that year, you don't see any value in your health insurance. And right now, it's upwards of $20,000 for a family policy for a year. That's a lot of money. In fact, uh, we're not getting the value for that that we should because other nations actually have healthier populations spending far, far less money. So we got to rein in our healthcare sector. We need to get value for money. That's what you look for in all other parts of the economy. 
But in healthcare, because it's so hard to measure, some people foolishly think that because it's expensive, it must be good. Uh uh-uh. Healthcare is often priced the same way. We see wild price variation. And one of the good things done recently, even the Trump did this, was to try to have price transparency for our hospitals. And guess what? 50% of the hospitals today are not obeying the law. And those that are complying are trying to fuzz up the numbers so much that it's hard to aggregate them so that you can find out where the best place to get care is. So we need price measures. We need quality measures. We need to be able to seek value in our healthcare economy. And so much of the health industry has resisted that for a long time. Congressman, uh, we've been uh, coming to the end of our 20-minute segment here. We've been dancing around uh, the reason for your retirement, and I want to give you a, co- uh, a chance to comment on that because it, essentially your district was taken away from you. Well, it's called a gerrymandering, and this is part of the hardball of politics. Both parties do it, but let's admit Republicans are just way better at it. And Nashville is a Democratic city, has been for at least a couple hundred years, and Republicans can't stand that. They already had in the Tennessee delegation of nine people, they already had a seven to two majority. Now they're making it eight to one. And actually, you know, this next election, they're going to win a majority in Congress anyway. They didn't need this seat because if you look at history, uh, only three times in the last hundred years has the party that's out of the White House not succeeded in the next next election. So but it's a petty partisanship. They couldn't beat me at the polls. I'm the most popular living politician in the Nashville area. So they just got rid of me by mapping. And this is a reversal of a fundamental rule. And actually, John Tanner carried this bill for a long, long time, as I have. Voters should pick the politicians. Politicians should not pick their voters. And that's what our Republican legislature did in the Tennessee legislature and made a map that you can't even describe it. It looks like spilled coffee, according to The New York Times. It's a total mess, but it guarantees a Republican majority. Well, as... uh as you uh, retire from Congress, we, we uh, certainly hope that you'll stay active in fiscal issues. And, uh, and uh, certainly we want to stay in touch with you at the Concord Coalition and uh, hope that we'll be able to call on you in the future. Absolutely. Call. It reminds me of what uh, one of the scurrilous Louisiana governors used to say. He said, when I die, if I die, I want to be buried in South Louisiana so that I can always remain active in politics. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Facing the Future on WKXL. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Phil Smith and I have been talking with Representative Jim Cooper of Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. National Field Director of the Concord Coalition, Phil Smith, and I are talking with Representative Jim Cooper of Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. Jim recently announced that he would not be running for re-election in uh, 2022, essentially because his district was disassembled. (laughs) Um, Jim, uh, the Congress is back uh, and working on a very full agenda. Um, What are your top priorities uh, in the coming few weeks? I like the physician rule. First, do no harm. Uh, We have a very hot economy right now. A lot of people are worried about inflation. That's a hidden, unlegislated tax on everybody. Now, I want wages to go up, but when you have to pay more for everything at the store, that eats into your paycheck. So people are not getting a net pay increase today. That's bad. So um, 
because the economy is so hot, I think you've not only seen Senate resistance to build back better, I think you're probably going to see um, taking a part of that giant bill so that individual measures can pass because there are countless worthy measures in that bill. But when it's all wrapped together, people don't understand it. And actually, the Democratic Party doesn't get credit for individual reforms. So I think we can pass the individual worthy elements because there's so much good in that bill. Uh, it really needs to pass. But if it's passed in pieces, it can actually give us more political benefit and help as many people as if it's when one big wrapped up package. I think uh, just from uh, my perspective, um, it, it might have another advantage, which uh, it might make it uh, uh, put it on a, a sounder fiscal footing because there were certainly a lot of um, budgetary things going on in that where things were expiring after a couple of years. And uh, so some of the accounting there was a little dubious, but, <laughs> but I think most everybody concedes that, uh, uh, you know, enacting permanent programs and finding a way to pay for them would be better economically and for the, the programs themselves. So it, it could actually be a, a blessing in, in disguise. I agree. You know, Bob and Phil, there are two stereotypes that most Americans uh, get wrong. Uh, one is that uh, Nancy Pelosi is a hopeless liberal when she's actually the one who got paygo in Congress so that you couldn't have a program unless you paid for it. Well, that's amazing. And that's the way Republicans used to feel. They've given up on paygo a long time ago. The other thing is uh, the fact that um, actually Republican presidents have outspent Democratic presidents when it comes to entitlement programs. This isn't me talking. This is in the Wall Street Journal. It's proven by several percentage points. Republican presidents are more generous with entitlement benefits than Democratic presidents. So whether that's uh, trying to reach for a new base, I don't know why it is, but that's historical truth. So actually, the uh, Democratic Party has more claimed fiscal responsibility than the other party in many fundamental ways. And don't forget what Bill Clinton did, because he's brave enough to pass a good budget in the early 90s. We actually had two or three years there of surplus, budget surplus. Alan Greenspan was worried that the Treasury bond might be eliminated. Oh, my God, I wish we could worry about that again. <laughs> and so that's uh, no president in modern times has done more to put our nation back on a fiscal path than Bill Clinton. Now, uh, Republicans don't want to remind people of that, but they need to remember that. Phil, you want to jump in? Sure, uh, Congressman. Uh, after 2022 is said and done, uh, I know that you're such a, a fan of public policy and you've been an active leader in so many ways in, in looking at substantive public policy. Um, will you stay active with fiscal policy um, with groups like the Concord Coalition? Absolutely. And I look forward to having freedom of speech because so often in politics, you have to be, you know, politically correct. You don't want to offend anybody. I remember early on in my career, I'd been taught as a child this phrase, redheaded stepchild. And then I met a redheaded stepchild. And I've never <laughs> used that phrase again. So you have to be careful all the toes you might be stepping on and some toes you didn't even know existed. And it's, it's hard because um, politics is... Um, you know, friends come and go, enemies accumulate. And I've been so blessed to be able to last this long without my enemies uh, outnumbering me. One of the things we're doing this year, Congressman, to celebrate our 30th anniversary is we're going to 30 different college campuses around the country to run our bu budget exercise and to bring in panel 
uh, expert panels across the country. So we'd love to come back to Nashville if you'll have us uh, oh, sometime. You're invited. We'll make sure it happens. I'd love that. You well, know, you I've have got, a few college campuses there in Nashville too, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. we got great campuses here. I've had 600 interns in my program, and I feel like I'm in touch not only through my own kids, but uh, through these interns. And what, what I start off helping them understand million, billion, and trillion because our English language is a deceptive. Each one of those words is three orders of magnitude apart. So the best way to remember it is a million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. A trillion seconds is 32,000 years. And you're headed back toward dinosaur time. And see, almost all the numbers in government now are in the trillions. And people just have no idea. I see the fancy newspapers in America make a mistake on these numbers. I see members of Congress make a mistake on these numbers. And you simply can't do that. Because as I tell people, it's the difference between singing uh, in your shower, singing the national anthem at a football stadium, or singing on American Idol. You know, the audiences are three orders of magnitude apart. And it, I, I sing in my shower sometimes, but I would never want to sing on American Idol. Like, oh, my God. So don't confuse those things. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, 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 it, it, is, it is amazing those differences and it's so easy to say million or billion when you mean trillion yeah. uh, or or the opposite i heard somebody this morning on on television a reporter say refer to the build back better bill uh, the, the climate change provisions in the build back better bill is something like 500 trillion and i thought oh. wait, wait, wait a minute wait a minute i think that's 500 billion <laughs> the build back better is pretty big but it isn't that big <laughs> Talk about infinite horizon. <laughs> Another trick I use on interns is they think they know what a million is because everybody wants to be a millionaire, but they don't know what a million is because the average person in their 20s, if they live a long and full life, only has one million half hours left in their entire life. And that doesn't sound like a whole lot. And every time you get a good night's sleep, minus 16, gone forever. And every mom tells you to get a good night's sleep. You know, one ball game or movie, minus four or five, gone forever. The only way to stop the clock is by exercising. And people have no idea about this. Your whole life is only 4,000 weeks. What are you going to do in those 4,000 weeks? By the way, that's only 4,000 weekends. You know, don't screw that up. Make the most of it. That's why even the Romans had phrases like carpe diem, seize the day. Don't screw around. Waste, don't waste time. You know, this is important. We've got a country to save here. And that's what the Concord Coalition does. Well, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate that. We're, uh, like Phil said, we're celebrating our 30th birthday. And sometimes it really does seem like you're banging your head against the wall. But I think it's, a, you know, it's exemplified by your career. It's certainly something that is terribly important and, uh, and, and worth doing. Uh, before we wrap up, there's one... Uh, you know, other issue that uh, obviously overhangs everything, and that is the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, there's uh, hopefully it's uh, hopefully it's fading. Hopefully we can get to a, a new normal. Do you see a, a need for well, let me just are there lessons to be learned relative to the federal budget with regard to the pandemic? And it's, it's more or less of the things that we could be doing better to prepare for such healthcare emergencies than, than we did in the past? Well, Bob, first, I think we're going to see a lot of denial. A lot of people will say, oh, I didn't get that money. 
We figured it out because uh, I'm good with numbers. Just the Nashville area has received $9.5 billion in the last 20 months. That's extraordinary. And those PPP loans that you know businesses got, they're not loans, they're grants. So let's tell the truth here. Second thing we're going to see is the real impact of the pandemic had nothing to do with the disease. It has to do with misinformation because tons and tons of Americans refuse to believe the science, refuse to believe facts, refuse to even protect themselves from mortal danger. And this is appalling because if we live in a misinformation world, then the propagandists like from the Russia and countries like that are just going to take over. We always have to revere the truth. And sadly, this pandemic showed that all too many Americans really don't care about the truth. They prefer their own illusions, even if it kills them. Um, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I can't fathom a thought uh, growing up in, a, in an age when um, vaccines were considered a, a great and wonderful miracle um, and everybody wanted them, how it became a... Um, a, a, a political football, and, and um, but it, it has, and we have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't realize the mind games that even television can play with us, but a skilled propagandist can make you hate your own mother. It's astonishing their power because uh, they have an ability to really get inside your brain. In the music industry, we call it earworms, mm -hmm. and uh, some of those catchy tunes, that's fun, but you kind of wish you could forget it. Some of these memes out there, are almost impossible to forget. So we really have to be careful here. Now with video, uh, deep fakes, they call it, it's incredible. They can put anybody's head on anybody's body doing anything. And we've got to be wary of this because this is really a new type of warfare and it's being waged on Americans every day. One of the most popular websites in Tennessee the last few years called TN underscore GOP is actually a Russian robot. This is all revealed in the Mueller report. It had 100,000 followers and no one ever complained, oh, this looks fishy. So a Russian computer can take over the minds of 100,000 Tennesseans? That's the sort of danger that any state can face, that any nation can face. And oftentimes, we don't even know what's happening to us. It's a painless sort of anesthesia that other nations can apply to us to dull our senses and to cripple our reasoning capability. Let's say, even like we saw in the pandemic, even when the stakes are life and death, we had a radio host in town here, Phil Valentine, who decried, he said, vaccines are terrible. He died of COVID. Now, he recanted a few days before he died, but it was too late, and his followers are still on the wrong path. It's just astonishing, the lasting effect of propaganda. You know, uh, we're going to have to end it there, but but that uh, should remind our viewers that, uh, that Jim also serves on the Intelligence Committee, so... <laughs> He, he knows of what he speaks here. Um, Jim, that's all the time that we have uh, uh, today. Thank you very much for your insights and more importantly, for your service in Congress and your devotion to fiscal responsibility. Thank you, Bob, Phil. You and Concord are awesome. Thank you. You're listening to Facing the Future. This is your host, Bob Bixby, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, I'm talking to Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. 
Uh, we'll get an update on what's going on with uh, some economic numbers. And uh, is Congress going to pass a continuing resolution to avoid a government shutdown by February 18th? Um, Tori, there were uh, new uh, jobs numbers that came out at the, the end of last week, and they astounded everybody. <laughs> People were speculating that we might even have job losses in January. What happened? So uh, on the surface, the uh, January jobs report was huge. Uh, expectations were pretty pessimistic, largely due to the Omicron surge and its impact on employment as people were staying home because they got sick. Everybody got sick. Uh, the consensus estimate among economists was around 150 to 200,000 new jobs created in January. Um, but the spread was really wide. There were some economists that were expecting to see jobs tick down uh, a little bit. And instead, um, the economy created a seasonally adjusted 470,000 new jobs, according to the government's survey of employers. Um, the unemployment rate ticked up a notch. Uh, to 4%, but that's because labor force participation rate rose. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, so yeah, it was a, a pretty, pretty bullish jobs report uh, on the surface. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, okay, so uh, that leads me to say what happened below the surface. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so what do you think? What are, what are, um, what are the takeaways, the trends, uh, Tori and then Steve? Well, I don't, I, I don't want to take talking points away from Steve, but I think the, uh, the, the key to the, the report is, you know, the data was reported on a seasonally adjusted basis. And one of the things that I think many economists in the BLS have been struggling with uh, during COVID are the seasonal adjustment factors. Um, Steve can probably talk more about this, but, you know, in general, the labor market, just like the economy, experiences some cyclicality throughout the year. Um, you know, for example, in the summertime, uh, employment falls in, in the education field as teachers are not in the classroom uh, because school is closed for the summer months. And in the, the wintertime, you know, retailers hire extra temporary workers to deal with the, the, the holiday crush. And then, of course, they let those, those workers go in January. And those, those patterns are not exactly playing out the way we're used to uh, in, in COVID. Steve? Let's, uh, yeah, go over to Steve here. Yeah, so as Tori says, the, um, the job numbers, there actually are two surveys. There's an employment employer survey that counts jobs. So individuals who might have two employers could be counted twice. There's also a household survey uh, where they you know, survey individuals. And so they ask people, are you employed? And they might have multiple jobs, but they only count them once as a person being employed. So you get some differences between the surveys. Um, but there also is this issue of, of seasonality, as, as Tori referenced. And, you know, the, the perfect example for the past month was employers hire workers to deal with, you know, the Christmas holidays. And so employment goes up in December. And then after the holidays, they let the, employee, the employees go. So employment goes down. And so, you know, interestingly, the unadjusted numbers, the, in other words, the actual count of employees from December to January actually fell by 2.8 million. Now, none of the stories in the press focused on the fact that the unadjusted numbers, which is the raw data, uh, employment fell from December to January. What they did focus on was to say, well, the employment in December was high because of the 
uh, Christmas seasonal employment. And so we're going to adjust the number down. And we know that you know, January employment is low because all those employees you know, were let go. So employment is down. So they adjust the numbers. And so the adjusted numbers showed the increase that, that, that Tori referenced, the 470,000. But the unadjusted numbers were actually down by 2.8 million. And you, know, you look historically, and, and that's the pattern that you see from December to January of, of all the previous years. Uh, they've been in the range of you know, two to three million. Uh, jobs, and then they adjust that away due, due to seasonality. Now, the question is, is the seasonality patterns different due to COVID? In other words, was the hiring somehow different by different industries, by different employers? Uh, and, and then those who were let go, uh, you know, as Tori said, everybody was expecting a drop in employment. And there, in fact, was a, an, a, an adjusted increase. And now the, the, the issue is the adjustments are done on a statistical basis. So they take historical data and they look at what the historical swings are and they apply those factors from the past to the present. And that, of course, is the big question is, is the, is the present like the past? Does, does COVID uh, affect the ability to correctly adjust for the seasonality factors? And, and the real reason this all matters, of course, is that the Federal Reserve is looking at the labor market and they're saying, is the labor market really tight? Because a tight labor market will add to inflationary pressures. And the Fed is saying, well, you know, we're going to end quantitative easing over the next month and we're going to start raising interest rates. And they're making those decisions based on, in part, the labor market data. And if they think the labor market is really tight and they go ahead and raise interest rates, and it turns out the labor market wasn't as tight as they thought because the seasonal factors were different than they thought, uh, you know, they may have to backtrack or, you know, m most likely, though, they're going to wait and, and look for next month's data uh, and not, you know, you shouldn't pin too much uh, on, on one month's data, you know, right. regardless of, of which data you're looking at. You, you want to look at the trend over time. Well, they went back and, and, and adjusted upward uh, numbers for December and, and November also. So it looks like uh, we've got a huge, the jobs were much better in November and December. Does the uh, A, does that, uh, does that alter anything? I mean, does that uh, affect the seasonality question that you were just discussing? Well, yeah, it's not clear. I mean, I, you know, they, they do adjustments to data and, you know, part of it is population controls. They get new estimates of the population from the Census Bureau and that reweights their survey. And as all of these, all of these data are based on surveys. And in order to, to extrapolate from a survey to the population, you have to apply weights to your sample. And when the population weights change, it affects the sample results. Now, in reality, we'll get a better picture of what happened when we get what's known as the, un the quarterly unemployment data, where employers are actually reporting uh, you know, by individual, how many workers are on their payroll and how, many, uh, how, how much unemployment taxes did they pay to the state unemployment systems. And you actually get a real headcount from every employer. Well, basically 95% of employers are covered under unemployment. And that data, of course, is there's a big time lag. We won't see this quarter's data till probably sometime in the fall at the earliest. And so, yeah, I mean, d data revisions are always a problem, which, you know, further complicates, you know, how to interpret the data. I think the one takeaway, 
from this is that it sounds like the BLS is really struggling to get an accurate count of jobs on the first print. Um, and I, I think that COVID is really messing with uh, employers and employees' ability to respond to, to BLS survey requests. Um, so I think we should expect to see large revisions in a number of months. Um, and those revisions can go in, in a number of different directions. That does remind me of two phrases from last week. One, one is that this stuff is really messy. And the other one was Tory's phrase of garbage in, garbage out. So if we're not really sure uh, because of the uncertainties of the situation, it's very difficult to make policy decisions, as Steve was saying, particularly with, from the Fed, uh, on, on these numbers. The, the, to take it back to decisions that Congress needs to be making now, there is the uh, the prospect of a government shutdown February 18th. It looks like they may pass a so-called continuing resolution, but that is a temporary stopgap again. Um, Tori, I guess we're no closer to full year appropriations. We are. If you if you believe the dailies, we're getting closer, but uh, you know we're sort of still stuck on third base. We haven't quite. You know, we're not running for home plate yet. Um, the, I think the frustrating part is that a, num a lot of the things that stymied full year appropriations uh, deals in September still exist today. Um, Republicans and Democrats are still arguing about a top line number. They're still arguing about the, the increase uh, between on the defense side and on the non-defense side of discretionary spending. Um, you know, they're, they're still struggling uh, to negotiate policy riders you know, that deal with things like uh, abortion. You know, they're still struggling on how to pay for veterans' health care. Um, and frankly, that the, the longer that they wait, you know, to get this full-year omnibus appropriations bill done, um, the more it makes sense that they actually just do a CR for the entire year. Noteworthy. Uh, we, we saw at the, uh, at the end of the week or the beginning of the week, I guess, um, Two sitting United States senators sitting side by side on a television show endorsing one another, and they were from different parties, <laughs> whereas uh, Senator Joe Manchin endorsed uh, Lisa Murkowski's reelection bid. Uh, and I believe Murkowski said that she would certainly support uh, Joe Manchin. And, uh, you know, it reminded me, Tori, of something that you came up with a long time ago. Uh, with the, the, the late, great Ed Lorenzen when you were working with uh, Charlie Stenholm and Jim Colby on Social Security, which was a, a get out of jail free card to not attack the other. Um, what uh, how did you come up with that? <laughs> this is back when I was a young staffer and before I understood the power of leadership uh, <laughs> and party unity. Um, yeah, I was working for a Republican member of the Congress, uh, Jim Colby from Tucson, Arizona, a friend of mine, Ed Lorenzen. Uh, was working for a moderate Democrat, Charlie Stenholm from Abilene, Texas. And these two gentlemen got together and put forward a bipartisan, bicameral social security reform bill in the late 90s. And um, we, we managed to build a, a nice coalition of Republicans and Democrats in the House uh, that supported our efforts. And the one thing that's that sort of knitted our coalition together is that we all agreed, hey, if one of our bosses, one of our members is being attacked in the press for supporting uh, social security reform, then the rest of us would come to the rescue with a well-worded uh, letter uh, 
to the editor of a local paper. And so we actually uh, had to deploy that tactic a couple of times. Uh, My boss, uh, you know, represented a a 50-50 district in Tucson, Arizona, and was getting soundly attacked by Democrats in his district. So Charlie Stenholm kindly wrote a letter on behalf of, of Jim Colby saying, hey, Democrats, don't attack, you know, Jim Colby for doing the right thing for future generations. And the same thing happened with uh, Charlie Stenholm when he was running for re-election. And my boss, uh, Jim Colby, wrote a letter saying, hey, Republicans, stop attacking, attacking you know, Charlie Stenholm for doing the right thing on Social Security. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of nice. I, I, I thought that era was, was long gone. Uh, and it was kind of nice to see uh, Senator Manchin and, and Senator Murkowski standing up for one another this weekend. Well, uh, that's a good place to end it on a nice positive note. Uh, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Tori. Um, and thanks to our earlier guest, uh, Representative Jim Cooper. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in again next week when we will have another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.